Hey, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We have a very interesting show for you today. So glad you're listening. We're going to talk to Brian Kennedy about the memo, the famous memo, connecting FISA, the FBI, and so on. There's been a lot of talk about this. There's been a lot of anticipation. Let's find out why it's so important. Brian Kennedy will guide us through that discussion. Finally, Conrad Black, who is uh, an author, non-affiliated member of the House of Lords. He lives in Canada. We'll get his perspective on American politics and the Donald. He has a unique and very strong perspective. So before we jump into the rest of the show, the substantive part of the show, well, this is substance too. It's just a different kind of substance. It's the morning after Super Bowl, and uh, I, I know what to say. It was a great game. Great game. I didn't really have a dog in this fight, but I was leaning toward the Eagles, just thinking it would be good to see another team win. Uh, and I'm just going to go right to the ending, because I thought, Claude, when you got to the end and they were down, the Patriots were down by five or six, whatever it was, and they got the ball with a couple of minutes two minutes, ten seconds, whatever it was. That, that That's it. It's the script. There's no way the Patriots lose that There's game. There's no way. This, this is where Brady puts to rest the whole Montana argument, the everything. Elway argument. He's the best ever. Right. All he's got to do is drive the ball down the field. Right. You know, and leave no time on the clock and, and uh, get it over. But tremendous effort by the Eagles. Uh, who was the guy who put put his paw on the... Oh, I'll have to look that yeah, up. But yeah. yeah. It was... Uh, anyway... Just keep going, keep going. I, I tweeted last night. I said, you know, they had guts. They had guts on the play calls. Amazing. You know, fourth and goal, didn't mm-hmm. kick the field goal, yeah. went for the touchdown with an amazing play, throwing to the quarterback. Uh, but uh, guts on the field, too. They kept going. That defensive line kept going. They never got to Brady, really, until that uh, two minutes left in the game and got that fumble. It was the one sack. In the game, but it was it mattered. And it, it was a oh, turnover. it mattered big time because yeah. they got it and then got that additional three points. Uh, and uh, still, the, the Brady couldn't 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 make the drive down the field. But uh, it was it was a very gutsy game. I got to admire Nick Foles. Uh, you know, I'm always on to the next question, and my next question is. What do you do with these two quarterbacks? <laughs> right. you got two really world-class quarterbacks. I mean, Foles' performance in this game, Super Bowl, and in the NFC Championship game. What do you do? with How do, how do they do that? What's the contract situation? Well, I mean, I don't know what the contract situation is, but they've got their future invested in Carson Wentz. Yeah. And, I mean, and the team You're was You're not going to give up Carson Wentz. No, no, no. no. I, think it's, I think the ball's in Nick Foles' court, right? I mean, if he wants to stay as a backup... I, it's not going to be a quarterback competition next year with Philadelphia. Carson's the guy. I guess it just depends on Nick. If he wants to stick around and be a backup, then, you well, know. Well, I don't know what they're paying him, but I know what his deal is. But he could obviously go somewhere else and be a starter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and someone else – is it likely that someone else is bound to offer him more than the Eagles will offer him as the backup? I would assume so. Jacksonville's an attractive spot. Denver's looking for a quarterback. And so you've got these places that need need a guy. And here's someone who just won a Super Bowl and may not even be starting for the team that he just won a Super Bowl for the next year. By playing a great game, too. Right. Not right. just by hanging out. But exactly. By playing a great game. Well, the guy's venality is not his sin. I mean, uh, apparently he wants to be a pastor after uh, the season, after he retires. 
uh, one of two or three eagles. By the way, I would join that church. Uh, <laughs> I would join yeah, that what church. Yeah, what church is it? Sign me up. I'll have what she's having, right? Yeah. Um, I loved it after the game when they talked to the coach and the players, and they all said, thank the Lord, my Savior, you know, nothing's possible without it. I, mean, I just love it because the way the, the way the mainstream culture likes to censor these things out, not censor, but just sort of block them out and not pay attention. You tweeted about that. Yeah, I did. And uh, there they were, one believer after another. And okay, okay. And was that Dan Patrick doing the right. interview saying, okay, fine, let's move on here. But uh, these many of these men, these big, tough, strong men are deeply religious. And uh, that was that was good to see. But uh, good, you know, good for the Eagles. Um, who was who's the guy in the um, the commentator um, who used to play for the Patriots? Uh, oh, Rodney Harrison. Rodney Harrison. Uh, he had an, two interesting comments. He said, um, one, um, they need more athletes. Uh, the Patriots need some athletes, uh, and I guess I think he means in their secondary. Their defense, their defensive line did pretty well, I thought. Uh, there were a few, you know, r- real good runs by the Eagles, but they basically did the job. But Foles was getting people open all day. But on on the other hand, the Patriots were getting guys wide open, wide, wide open. open. I mean, you know, the the Eagles did a good job of converting a lot of third and shorts, third and six, third and five. Yeah, the Patriots yeah, couldn't yeah. get off the field. But to your point, the Patriots were getting guys wide open. And don't forget, um, you know, their number one receiver went out with a head injury in the first quarter. Um, gosh, his name escapes me now, but he's the guy they got from New Orleans who can really stretch the field. So right, right. They were working with limited resources. Like Gronk again, was but, back, and Gronk yeah. was playing. Uh, but, I mean, those guys were open like at a touch football game, the, the Patriots. <laughs> it, was, it was like open by 15 right. yards. Yeah. You know? yeah. and, and and the Eagles t- couldn't seem to uh, figure it out. I was thinking at one point what one of the announcers said, which is, if these guys are going to be that open, you might as well rush one one more guy anyway. You know, right. Put the pressure right. on Brady. Right. But um, uh, anyway, Foles was incredible on third down. And Ertz, who I like, he's their tight end for the Eagles, did a, did a great job. But the the big boys up front, I think, I mean, they, they protected Foles. Foles. Was Foles sacked? I don't think he was no, sacked. No, no. I don't think he was sacked. So anyway, a terrific Super Bowl, one for the one for the books. And uh, you know the the great master went uh, went down, but I mean he's still he's still. So yeah, will he's he, will he be back? Will he be back? Oh, absolutely! I great. mean, there's yeah. no reason not, not gonna, to come back. Not gonna not come back. But the question for you is, what are you going to do? You looked like that, wouldn't you? Come? Oh, but well, yeah. <laughs> there'd be no question. <laughs> right. Um, but what are you going to do for the next six months until August? When uh, you, know, you ask a hard question. That's why I don't want to end this conversation. Because once this conversation's over, the game's over in my commentary. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to, you know. Alabama spring football is in a few months, right? I guess. I just what I do. That's what I got to do. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Brian Kennedy joins me now. He is the president of the American Strategy Group. And in full disclosure... I am a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. Brian, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Brian, let's get right to it. Uh, The memo, the memo, the memo. What's the core of it? I mean, there's been a lot of talk, Brian, uh, a lot of commentary in the couple of days since this memo was uh, released. What's the core of it? What's most important? I don't want it to get lost in the noise. Yeah, the core of it is what appears to be very high-level corruption by
by both the Justice Department in seeking the FISA warrant, what appears to be their presentation to the FISA court insofar as they relied on this Steele memo, which by all accounts is just as salacious. In James Comey's own words, salacious and unreliable, that they would rely on such a document to go and investigate an American citizen and then extend that surveillance to everybody around that person, right? Everyone around that person becomes, in a way, guilty of something in the minds of these prosecutors or potential prosecutors that people will start to worry about the credibility of their government. And that's the real shame here. Yeah. The core, it seems to me, is that this was a falsification, that there wasn't grounds to tap this guy uh, or to tap the Trump campaign. And what was brought to the court was essentially false documents, incomplete documents, and in their incompleteness, not talking about the source of the, of the, of the information, uh, a falsification. Right, right. And it really does show you that people are policy. And if you get the wrong people doing this kind of work and they feel emboldened to use such false documents, there's a real problem with our government. So a government of law and order can be undermined, again, by a few bad apples who have a political axe to grind here. We know that Steele says he had this animus, but the people presenting this to the FISA court also had that kind of animus. And we have to wonder, what I was, you know, looking at the document, warrants had to go not only by McCabe and others during the Obama years to the FISA court, but Rosenstein had to bring it to the to the FISA court, too. Yeah, at least the latter and the court, ones. And the court, yeah. Right, the latter ones, right. So he was presumably looked at all this information and brought the exact same information, as far as we can tell here, to the FISA court. Now, who did Rosenstein, or Stein, however you say it, who did he talk to about this? He couldn't, correct me if I'm wrong here, he couldn't have spoken to Jeff Sessions about this because Jeff Sessions had recused himself on any matter relating to Russia. And the heart of this is the Steele memo, which deals with Russia. He couldn't have Mueller about this, because Mueller was doing an investigation. He probably spoke to Comey about it, I would think. But did he talk to anyone else? He obviously spoke to McCabe about it. Again, another political, what we're seeing now to be a very overly partisan actor here within the Justice Department. But who else did he talk to? Did he talk to anybody in the White House about this? I mean, these are some of the things that are unanswered in all this. But one wonders, who did he consult with? before he, Rosenstein, actually went and decided to renew this FISA warrant? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I believe we don't, we don't know the answer. One of the arguments that's made against Nunes in the memo is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. These, you know, these FISA warrants were issued, yes, uh, in October, but there was an inquiry going on before that into Carter Page. There was an inquiry that had begun an alert in, in earlier, in July, I believe. And there was also uh, an inquiry or interest in uh, the person of this guy, Papadopoulos. Uh, so, 
you know, for the for the for the Nunez supporters who are saying, well, this whole thing was trumped up. Excuse the expression. Um, there was independent concern and worry, uh, as evidenced by those two facts. Well, yes, the uh, the independent concern though seems a little specious because who the heck is Carter Page? Yeah, you know, it's not like this was someone at the heart of our government doing really important things. No one knew who Carter Page was. I mean, outside of a few maybe academic circles or policy circles. Carter Page was not a high government official engaged in high government negotiations, and somehow he had been compromised. This is someone in the broader national security or foreign policy world who had contacts with Russians. Well, if you and I get invited to a conference and there are Russians there, are we in contact with Russians? Yeah. And does that get the, give the U.S. government account to go surveil us? Forget Russia for a moment. How many public policy conferences do people in this world, in the world of public policy, go to that have China there, that have Chinese government officials there? China is at least as dangerous as Russia when it comes to all this. Are all these people being surveilled? Yeah. I sincerely doubt that, by the way. If one looked at the contacts of Chinese agents of influence in the broader Washington, D.C. policy world, if, if you put those two things together, you would need to surveil the entire establishment yeah. on the left and the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do we know, by the way, uh, this is something I've asked, I haven't gotten an answer yet, maybe you know, whether the surveillance that took place, the wiretapping or whatever it was, was only on page? Papadopoulos, or was it on others higher up, more central, actually central to the Trump campaign? That's another good question. I believe, according to a FISA warrant, you can only go on the person actually being surveilled. So if, if Carter Page calls up Donald Trump, which he never did, as far as we can tell, but if he calls up anybody... You can only go after Carter Page. You can't then start assuming that anybody he talks to is also then going to be surveilled. If you're going to build a case against Carter Page and surveil him that way, you can easily just by extension say, well, you know, John Doe talked to Carter Page. And so we don't you know if we're going to look at Carter Page, we better look at John Doe, too. So it, it would behoove us to know exactly everybody that was in that loop. Yeah. And to what extent and to what extent these investigators were going and actually trying to engage in a kind of political war against, you know, the Trump yeah. campaign and then, the, and then the Trump transition team, then the Trump White House. Yeah. I found it curious as well, back to this question of independent, which you rightly took issue with on Papadopoulos and Carter Page early in that if I read this correctly, remember this correctly. The FBI guy who opened up the thing early on uh, on these guys was Peter Strzok. Right. Uh, and we know where his motivation was in all this. We know that from those from those memos. So, you know, that that again casts uh, cast doubt, you know, on, on the, quote, independence of, the, of this investigation. A couple things that have been said now in the mainstream media and by the Democrats is uh, one of them is Donald Trump his administration have now uh, cast out on all law enforcement everybody in the FBI and Justice Department and everybody in law enforcement I don't believe that for a second I think what they're talking about is some people maybe five maybe eight I don't know how many but a finite number of people who were so so motivated uh, do you have a view on that 
Well, I think that's a great point to raise. Of course, has there ever been in the last 20 years a president more openly on the side of law enforcement as Donald Trump? And the answer would be no. Yeah. He goes out of he goes out of his way to articulate time and time again all the good being done by our police and FBI and broader intelligence community. He says the rank and file are great people. Great, great people, you'll often say. And I believe him that he believes that. Yeah. And I believe those people are great. Yeah. But when you, ha- when you have a handful of people who decide to take it upon themselves to engage in a kind of, almost kind of a coup-like effort against this administration, then you have to wonder about those few bad actors, yeah. as I was yeah. saying. Yeah. It could just be a dozen people, but those yeah, dozen people, right. and, and you know, look, anytime someone gets pulled over by a policeman, you know, for a traffic ticket and they have a bad experience, yeah. well, all of a sudden, for that day anyway, the, the police are no good. Yeah. But of course, we know the, pol- the police defend us. Trump wants that. He has been outspoken in that regard. And I'm curious what you think about this. The big deal was made about sources and methods intelligence. And the Democrats said we can't release the memo because to do so would be to endanger the sources and methods. You know, lives are at stake here. We cannot release this memo. And yet, when you read this document, as I think many Americans have by now, where are the sources and methods that were put into, you know, in jeopardy here? I'm afraid that cry, that scream, uh, was also made by the director of the FBI, Christopher Wray. Which yeah. calls into question their credibility. Yeah, that's right. I don't think they fully appreciate just what they did there. Yeah. No, that's uh, right. We've entered a kind of age of untruth, haven't we? Yeah, and I, you know, I want to know when, when we'd establish the truth. I mean, uh, people are calling for an independent commission. Uh, you know, of, uh, of citizens. I, I, I don't know. I, I'd just like to see more of the documents revealed. Um, by the way, on this point about criticizing a few FBI people, it doesn't mean criticizing all of the FBI or all of law enforcement. Molly Hemingway has a great uh, column on it, which she points out the New York Times a day or two ago had front page saying the FBI headline, FBI plotted, P-L-O-D-D-E-D, while this guy in Michigan or Michigan State was, you know, uh, behaving so horribly with these young women, sexually assaulting these young women. And the Times blasts the FBI people for plotting along so that this thing continued. Well, no one accused the FBI in general of, you know, being out of out of control. Just that investigation. Ironically, she points out right next to that story was a story accusing Trump of the very same thing, of being anti-law enforcement, anti-FBI, for taking issue with what a few people did. So it's a, it was a perfect, it's all on the front page. FBI screws up in the Michigan State case, it's just those guys who are involved. FBI screws up in this case and is called on it, and uh, it's Trump uh, blasting the whole FBI. So it was a it was kind of nice counterpunch by, uh, by Molly Hemingway. We can put a link up to that. Uh, yeah, she, she, she's really a great. She's really a great writer. Was she one of um, yours at Claremont at some point? She was. Yeah, she actually she was a Lincoln Fellow That's of the amazing. Claremont Institute way back when uh, with her husband, uh-huh. Mark yeah. Hemingway, who's also who's also a very fine writer. Yeah, her general point's absolutely right. Since when in this country can we not at least question how it operates? That's right. 
how our government operates, whether it's the Department of Agriculture or the State Department or the FBI. Or the president. I mean, you can can question the the president. You can impeach the president. You can do all sorts of things without being accused of being un-American. You know, as we did with Clinton and, you know, the questioning of Nixon. And people can question Trump now. It's, you know, it's okay. I I do think the real danger here, though, is the lack of truth and transparency that the the Democrats were and Adam Schiff was presenting. He went and lied about this sources and methods stuff. He knew in the document there was no revelation about sources and methods. He knew that. And so that wasn't just being a partisan. That was openly, I don't care what you want to call it, lying, disseminating to the American people something very fundamental. And he thinks he can get away with that politically because the truth no longer matters in our politics. That's a, that's something which I think serious people are going to need to take a real look at because a free society like ours cannot continue, especially in these sensitive areas, if we're not going to have truth and transparency. Well, let's get to that. I was going to close with that, but I, I really have two more things I want to talk to you about in this regard, and that, that was one of them, which is where we go from here right now. Whatever your view of it, and your view is clear, and I'm I'm with you in, in your view. I think Nunes is a hero, national hero. But you will admit that what we've got here is two sides, you know, screaming at each other, yelling at each other, arguing with each other. And never the twain shall meet. It doesn't look like these are reconcilable differences. Um, how do we get out of this? How do we get to the truth? Yes, it's, a, it's something. People have been calling it something of a food fight, people yelling at each other. But... Let's look at all the documents. Yeah, okay. And let's have a national debate over this. Yeah. And either... Are we either having a national debate? Are we having a national I, debate? Or are I we having we a are. Fight? Uh, Okay. Well, I think we are. I mean, let's, let's say I think we are having a national debate. And I think to the extent that, that Chairman Nunes says, let's look at more documents. Right. But let's actually look at the actual documents themselves. If Carter Page is that important... Let, let's look at his whole FISA warrant. Let's take out whatever could endanger anybody within law enforcement, but not, not in leadership, of course. The names of the people who are running the FBI should be examined. And then let's just discuss it. Either, either this is the grounds for doing a FISA investigation, an investigation on someone, or it's not. Let's have that debate. More documents, more discussion about these things. What is our national security apparatus doing? And can we do it better? And if so, what does that look like? Let's have that discussion. But for Adam Schiff and others, simply to disseminate to the American people on what's going on, let's have Nunes and Schiff get on TV and debate these things. Yeah, and I I can hear some listener here, you know, getting ready to email me saying, oh, Bill, you see this bright, sunny day when all the sides, you know, put down their swords, turn them into plowshares. No, no. The search for the truth doesn't mean everybody's going to agree to it, but we carry it on anyway, and then we'll at least have the satisfaction of knowing what these documents. Then we get into the second stage, which you know concerns me, Brian, and has for 50 years, the writing of history. You know, who writes this up, you know? How does it get written? But I quite agree with you. The Independent Commission doesn't interest me so much as the revelation of these, uh, reveal these documents. I, I didn't realize till a few hours ago, maybe I just wasn't paying sufficient attention, that the mention in these warrants to the FISA court uh, of the political nature of this uh, intelligence, quote, intelligence, was in a footnote. And that's all it said. It said there's a political dimension. It didn't say Hillary Clinton campaign, Democrats, and so on. 
So, you know, more and more revelations all the time. I totally agree. Everything has a political dimension, of course. Of course. You can't take politics out of anything. Right. And so why bother? But that doesn't mean there is a truth. That doesn't mean there's a Democrat truth and a Republican truth. It means there's still a truth, correct? Absolutely. And that's the thing we should be searching for here. And let's start with, not to beat a dead horse here, but start with the fact that Schiff said this would reveal sources and methods. And that was clearly untrue. Clearly, clearly untrue. Unless the sources and methods is lying and fabrication. If that's your source and method, then, well, yeah. Okay. Well, then, second, let's point out that the source here was uh, highly suspect and highly politicized and politically motivated, which seems to be another important piece of truth in this business, especially when you're talking about going to the FISA courts. You know Devin Nunes, uh, Chairman Nunes. He is much in the news. He has uh, been making a ton of news himself. Uh, A lot of people love him, celebrate him. Democrats and liberals seem to revile him and want to get rid of him as quickly as possible. What is his role in all this, and what is the significance of the memo? Give us a little background uh, from the perspective of a person uh, who knows Devin Nunes and knows something of the history. Well, anybody who knows Devin Nunes wouldn't be surprised by um, by what he's done here. It takes an enormous amount of courage to stand up in Washington and do the right thing, especially when so many forces are allied against you. Uh, the, the popular media, the media elites, the bureaucratic elites, they didn't want the memo released and are going to fight this thing tooth and nail. Brand Townsend, uh, former Bush administration official, was on CBS calling this a political document, not a fact document. The entire establishment against you, it would have been really easy for Devin Nunes just to keep his head down, do the day-by-day work of the Intel Committee, and not take this thing on, but he did. And for that, he is, in in my estimation, a national hero, because he's exposing this effort by, you know, I don't think that many people, to try to delegitimize a president that was elected by running against the elites in Washington. And so this is uh, this is the beginning, or you might say the next phase of a political civil war that the country's having. And right now, Devin Nunes is our Nathan Hale. Wow, very interesting. You, uh, by, by talking about Fran Townsend, who was critical of uh, Chairman Nunes, uh, you remind me, and maybe correct me, that when I talked about Democrats and liberals, this is uh, something uh, some Republicans, establishment Republicans, uh, are opposed to as well, right? I mean, when you talk about him shaking things up and being an independent voice, uh, he is independent of uh, many of the uh, Republican stalwarts and establishment stalwarts, as well as Democrats and liberals. Well, stalwarts, I'm not so sure about that. Okay. But certainly okay. the established. <laughs> Standard bearers. I, I'm being critical. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm being critical this morning. Um, yeah, I mean, look, the uh, the establishment in Washington, look, the, the, the Bush administration, the Obama administration, these people have been there going in and out of each other's administrations for the better part of, you know, three decades, two decades anyway. 
and they all know each other and they all go to the same cocktail parties and they're all part of mm-hmm. what you, you might refer to as the establishment or Donald Trump refers to as the swamp. And so when Devin Nunez from California, a guy who is not part of that establishment, decides to go just do the right thing and let there be, for God's sake, transparency, just transparency, then he has caused the worst affront ever, apparently. Yeah, and is yeah. threatening that establishment. And I, I, I tell you, it takes a lot more courage than people uh, believe, because you can become socially and politically yeah. ostracized sure. from so many people. And it, it really is a, it really yeah. is a, an important thing here that uh, Chairman Nunes has done. Okay, Brian, thank you very much. Thanks for your insight on all this. And as we say. To be continued uh, in, in Washington and with you. And again, thanks to the American Strategy Group for your support. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. A historian, author, founder of the National Post, and non-affiliated member of the House of Lords, it's Conrad Black. I'm reading your, your great uh, post here, National Review. Um, why did the British start by disliking Donald Trump? Before he's even done anything. Uh, What's the problem? You see, all they saw of him was what their media told them about him. And their media basically took the feed from the you know, from the majority of the national media in the U.S., but they put in some British flourishes. For example, unless it's explained to foreigners, they wouldn't immediately understand that it's actually an extraordinary achievement for Trump to have made billions of dollars in a very tough business, to have made such a tremendous recovery from a financial crisis, and to have turned into an instant television star at his first try and retained for 15 years. He retained 25 million viewers. I mean, it looked like it wasn't the kind of television I ever watched, but that's not the point. He did it, and it was, it was, a, it was a remarkable thing. You and never saw that show, right? You never saw that I, show. I, I don't think I ever saw it once. No, I, me, but neither. Saw it. me neither. And I'm a Trump guy. Yeah. Me neither. <laughs> I wasn't particularly trying to avoid it. I just don't watch television. No, yeah. well, I think I was but, trying to avoid it. All right, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> to them, they wouldn't realize... Uh, unless somebody laboriously pointed out to them that it has never happened in the history of the United States that a person who had never held a public office elected or otherwise or sought one and had never held a serious military command uh, could take over one of the parties and lead it to election. You know, even ex-presidents couldn't lead a third party to victory. Uh, mm-hmm. Van Buren and Fillmore and Theodore Roosevelt all altered the result against the party that they had deserted, but they, they had no chance of election themselves. The British don't, you see, they think they know America because they like to stereotype it, but the fact is they don't know anything about it. So it's easy in Britain to focus on that sentiment that is still in that country, that they've been completely upstaged as the leading country in the world, and particularly the leading English-speaking country in the world. And it is possible to sell the British almost any version of garishness and <laughs> banality of the U.S. Not not evil. They don't think they certainly don't think it's an evil country, and they don't forget that you know it is a free country that has been a great ally of Britain's at times. Sure. They don't forget that. But but they have this ghastly, condescending, simplified 
simplistic, in fact, view of the United States, and they're always susceptible to believe negative things about it. Not not hideously negative, just slightly mockingly negative. Despite the courtesies of British diplomats and the existence of a of a minority that is fundamentally pro-American, of, of whom the most prominent recent example was Margaret Thatcher. She always admired American efficiency and courage, going back to when. Um, as a girl, they'd, they'd invite American servicemen near, you know, in the town where they lived, back from the church services to dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, and there, there is that tradition in Britain, but it's not the majority. I mean, all of the labor left, which is almost half the people, are, are really far leftists, and they hate American capitalism and materialism. And the old Tories, the Thatcherite ones, are fine from this perspective, but the rest of them are still basically colonel blimps who think that. Uh, that Roosevelt and Marshall and Eisenhower shafted them out of the empire. Yeah. That they should still yeah. be in India and Palestine. I mean, fine job they did in Palestine. But let me be clear, I am British, as you could tell from my heavy accent, and I'm a member of their parliament, and it's a great country, and I'm yes, proud sir. to be British, but they have some failings, and one of them is is they're skeptical of foreigners generally, and, and they're rather envious of the Americans. I got I to gotta insert here, it's neither here nor there, and I don't want you to lose your thread, but you mentioned Margaret Thatcher. And I, boy, apparently I it was a hit on Fox TV. I have to tell you, before the State of the Union, they asked me about the procedure of uh, you know the one person sitting out, and I said I was the designated survivor twice during the Reagan administration. Conrad. Yeah. That is, I was the guy who was left out in case there was a cat- catastrophe, and the capital is blown up. There has to be one person in succession who's out. So I got in that Air Force plane, and they took me to Albuquerque. Why, I don't know. We refueled and then went back. And on the trip, I said to the, the steward on the plane, who's that guy? And he said, he's the military aide. And I said, and he said, yes, sir, he has the nuclear codes. I said, I am the secretary of education. What am I doing with the nuclear codes, right? And he I'm going to educate the Russians. Yeah, that's right. And he said, well, you may be the man, sir, should, you know, should disaster occur. I said, I just have one more question, and this is why I'm bringing it up, Conrad, because you mentioned it. I said, do you guys have Margaret Thatcher's phone number? I just, <laughs> just in case, you know, I wanted to talk to a pro. Anyway, yeah. people were fascinated by that. She would have yeah. said, Bill, don't wobble. That's right. Don't get wobbly on me. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Now, one of her favorite things she said. Don't mean to interrupt your your uh, your, your thread. I, let me go to a sentence of yours to remind, remind us where we are. Most of the British media are anti-American anyway. And like most of America's so-called allies, Britain likes weak American presidents who are fluent and courteous other than when they are themselves in mortal peril, at which point strong American presidents suddenly are appreciated. So before Trump takes office, you've characterized what the reaction was. Now that he's taken office, they're not getting that kind of weak, compliant president, right? That's right. And I think he's made it abundantly clear that he's pro-British. And when Theresa May came on her first visit, just I think a month into the presidency of uh, the Trump presidency, he did say a strong and sovereign Britain is a blessing to the world. And it was a great statement. And I have told my British friends that I didn't think enough was made of it. The fact is yeah. he's far more interested in and admiring of the British than Obama was. Uh, you know, it was from sure. a different tradition altogether. And, sure. um, uh, you know, he was a Midwesterner and I'm not going to mind read 
present and past presidents, but but he he had a he had a different formation, and I, I think some of this will come right, and they will see the attractive aspects of uh, President Trump uh, as time goes by. They're not ostriches with their heads in the sand, and they can change their minds. They started out regarding President Reagan as as just a comic yep. strip character, yep. and they ended up admiring him. Yep. And so so these things happen, and and uh, it'll all come around. As a matter of fact, I think the public relations generally within the country and outside have improved for the president significantly in the last year. I mean, you recall that yep. when he set out on his trip to uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and so forth, Mr. Silver of NBC said there was a 25 to 50 percent chance of his impeachment. I, I don't think any sane person thinks he's going to be impeached now. Yeah, I want to I want to get to that because the end of your essay, uh, and we'll put a link up to this great essay, you talk about the light at the end of the tunnel and perhaps some... Um, some agreement, some reconciliation, the last uh, kind of last negative gasp of uh, of the opposition. I want to get to that, but let's let's go through first, if we if you will, a little bit of your view of the State of the Union. I found it fascinating. I I loved the speech. I thought it was great. You said yes and no. There were things that bothered you. You thought it was very strong on policy, but there were some aspects of it you didn't care for. Well, I remember, as you do, when this business of introducing admirable people who, who basically ordinary people who had either faced terrific challenges with great courage or done something spontaneously admirable. He introduced him, started with, with President Reagan, and he introduced a few of them. And I, I thought it was, frankly, not exactly relevant to the State of the Union, but a nice touch in a way. And uh, and certainly good human touch for the chief of state and head of the government and commander in chief of the armed forces to recognize these citizens from around the country who did different things that were commendable. But it's getting more and more extended. And uh, I think over 80 minutes is too long for a speech like that to hold a national audience. Now, you know, look, it's not for me to give communications advice to the president, but I was giving my opinion. And I thought it was, as I said, overdone. I'm not criticizing any of the individuals involved, but many of them were quite touching stories. But I thought there was too much of it uh, because it made the speech too long. And so I have to put this delicately, not just out of diplomacy, but because it's a slightly subtle uh, sensation. But if I were an American, I wouldn't put too much freight on this wagon of exceptionalism. They, in my opinion, the most extraordinary irony of contemporary affairs in, in political matters or international political matters is that the United States undoubtedly is chiefly responsible for the success of democracy and the free market in the world. And, and those of us in other countries must never cease to be aware of and grateful for that. But it is not today a particularly well-functioning democracy. The role of money in American elections is worrisome. God knows I'm no socialist, but it is worrisome. And the amount of cynicism in the process, and frankly, in some respects, corruption in the process, and I'm afraid, latterly, that has included uh, the criminalization of yeah. political differences and the warping and politicization to some degree of the upper levels of the justice system. And it is, frankly, a terrible criminal justice system. One of the things I was, was most impressed by in the president's speech was his reference to doing something for people discharged from uh, from correctional institutions, because, uh, you know, I know something about that. And, and 
the United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its incarcerated people. And that is not as it should be. Yep. And, and the prosecution system gets a 99% conviction rate, 97% without trial. Now, that is not what the authors of the Bill of Rights had in mind. By all means, every American should be proud of his country. And I'm scandalized at the conduct of these football players and so on. All of that I agree with the president on. But I thought he waved the flag around in a way that implied not only that the United States was the chief propagator and protector of democracy in the world, which is absolutely true, but that it was in terms of evaluating the criteria for democracy superior to all other countries. And that, unfortunately, is not true. Well, Canada is a better democracy than the U.S. Denmark is. Now, they don't carry the same burdens in the world. I'm not suggesting they're superior countries, but I would just be a little more careful with that one. When you say better democracy, you mean functions better as a democracy, yeah, they, not they, as they, a better country. You don't get gridlock. You don't get anything hinting at politicization of prosecutions and that sort of thing. I, let me just go back to the people uh, up in the gallery and the use of them. I, I, I find this um, often tiresome. I didn't in this one because it seemed to me they were linked to policy in a way that they hadn't been in the past. Um, yes, I agree. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. And, and, and I got to say... The immigration I, questions and the North Korean... Holy so agree. smokes, Conrad. On that one, this guy, this president of ours, uh, introduces the topic of immigration by talking about MS-13. Holy yeah. smokes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, 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 I agree. It, I, I, I wouldn't have taken that. I, I hope um, you didn't get the impression, and other readers didn't, that I was giving a half and half comment. I thought no, it was a brilliant speech, and, and I'm glad to see that the polling on it has been so favorable. No, no, your exception to some aspects of exceptionalism is is, is duly noted. I want to... Uh, I, 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 all presidents have, have this to aim at. Yeah. When President Roosevelt gave his address on D-Day, uh, beginning with the words, Our sons, pride of our nation, have this day embarked on a mighty endeavor of liberation, and ending with the words... Uh, the valor of our sons and allies will build the world a peace, invulnerable yeah. to the schemings of unworthy men. Only spoke for eight minutes. The following day, the Gallup organization reported 100% approval. I mean, usually there's some crackpot out there who says he, Roosevelt started the war to make money selling, you know, handguns or something. But the 100, they repolled to make sure it wasn't a mistake. But yeah. there it was. No, I, he got apparently 75% on this one, which is yeah, an, no, hour, and, and he, an hour time. And he's, he's picking good. up on the polls all the time. He's yes, he is. Yes, up he into is. the mid-40s now. Yes, he is. The, the other thing is that, that I disagree with you is, is I, I thought the 80 minutes was fine for this guy. Because I the world in which I live... You know, I live right inside this. I'm a, I'm a swamp creature. I'm right inside the Beltway, <laughs> and uh, you know, I know that's not most of the country, but uh, but you know, uh, people needed to be introduced to him. A lot of what people get is just this, you know, this constant media drumbeat against him. So yes. there he was in full flower, and you know, excessive flower, excessive perfume, self perfume, maybe. But uh, not no, I wouldn't say that. I okay, mean, it's just okay. a bit long. That's all. No, I I thought it. I I don't want to seem to nitpick. I thought it was an excellent speech. No, well, I, but I asked you to nitpick. Here's the part that intrigues me. This is uh, so encouraging to me, but I don't know that I agree or thought of it. The end of your essay. Over time, half the people are in each party, and both are needed to govern. Washington became Babylon. Donald Trump stormed Babylon. And the process of what is ironically known politically as fusion between the two is underway. 
the Democrats, having set out to impeach Donald Trump and having almost destroyed the Clintons instead, must be almost ready for a modicum of cooperation, as the government shutdown farce indicated. The media will cool out and the world will see America more clearly. Chaos is receding rather than rising. Neither side will send the other to prison and neither should aspire to do that. Maybe it's modicum of cooperation, the word modicum we need to focus on, but you see things settling down at the moment or in the uh, future? I, I, mean, I think it's not in the next few days. Not in the next few days. Not with the memo. No, 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 no. Right. Yeah, I'll tell you what. A year ago, um, the Republican leaders in the Congress were just sitting on their hands. Uh, McConnell and Ryan, as far as I could see, were not lifting a finger even to confirm the president's nominees. It took forever to get, uh, with a couple of exceptions, to get his people in. And nothing was moving. And frankly, I had the impression that Washington, as usual, had been drinking its own swamp water and, and, and really wasn't sure that this man was legitimate and was going to last. So by a variety of factors, the circumstances changed. And uh, the Republican leaders in the Congress and almost all of the rank and file of both houses in that party are now, as far as I can see, rock solid behind the president trying to get practically all of his program through. Uh, I mean, there'd be some chivying here and there, but in general, they're supporting the president of their own party. And the Democrats, who started out uh, promising scorched earth, the resistance, Schumer was going to block everything and obstruct everything, they've loosened up to some degree. I think Pelosi is rivaling Comey for for having apparently taken leave of her senses in her public utterances, yeah. but she, she may come around. But um, Schumer is, is less militant and histrionic than he was when he when he claimed the Statue of Liberty was weeping, and yeah. he was weeping over the over the nonsense about uh, you know, immigration from terrorism afflicted countries and so on, or visitors from those countries. So it's hard to keep it in mind from one week to the next. But it is a much more civilized atmosphere now than it was a year ago, or even even at the time of that nonsense in Charlottesville. Where, as far as I can see, all yeah. the president said was that there were bad people on both sides, uh, and for that he was. Hillaryed uh, for for being soft on Nazism, yeah, and the yeah. Ku Klux Klan was just outrageous. And I, I, I think things have settled down from there, and I think that process will continue. Wow, that's not in a straight line, obviously. I, that's yeah. not how it worked. No, I need to think about that. I mean, that was the real, and I'm going to get the audience reaction to it. We always get a great reaction to your uh, to your presence on this on this podcast. It's very kind of you. It's always good to have Conrad Black on the show. Expands my vocabulary. And that just about does it for us this week. Claude or Ricky, before we go, we have some emails. Dr. Bennett, this is from Don in Redmond, Washington. I've enjoyed listening to you for years, and now through your podcast, I religiously listen to your podcast every Saturday morning while doing my chores around the house. I want to say thank you. Well, thank you, Don. He says, keep up the good work, and you keep up the good work as well. Uh, I love this one. This is from... And I've been a fan for some time. Delighted to know you graduated from Gonzaga High School. I am also a graduate of Gonzaga High School, but not the one in Washington, D.C., the one in Spokane, Washington. Actually, Anne, my college roommate my freshman year, was a graduate of Gonzaga in Spokane. Well, look at that. Look at that, right. <laughs> uh, she writes, I presumed your Gonzaga was my Gonzaga. Now, of course, the Internet helped me sort things out, but I must say there must be someone, something similar coming out of our Gonzaga Jesuit educations. 
because we are in sync in most of our thinking and reasoning. Keep up the good work. Well, the Jesuits tell you they don't tell you what to think, but they tell you how to think. I think that's mostly baloney. I think they tell you what to think, and it's pretty liberal. But I reacted against it eventually, and so did Ann. Great to hear from you, Ann. Thank you. Feel free to send us your thoughts. The email address is billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for this week, folks. Talk to you next week on The Bill Bennett Show. Thank you.